0: scripture reading is from both the New and Old Testament. The New Testament is from Matthew chapter 11, verse 25a, and verses 28 to 30. It goes, at the time, Jesus declared, come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. From the Old Testament, um, there's three, all from the book of Proverbs. Uh, First, chapter 27, verses 19. As in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects the man. Verse 14, uh, chapter 14, verse 30. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Finally, chapter 15, verse 30. The light of the eyes rejoice the heart and good news refreshes the bones that's the word of the lord Thanks.
1: thank you luke well today we end our summer series in proverbs for the digital age and my hope throughout this series is that as maybe you've witnessed and seen is how our digital age has shaped us um, that As we said in the beginning, technology has a telos, it has a purpose, and as Christians, uh, we are to examine it through the lens of Scripture to see how Scripture is sufficient in this age and in every age to be able to clearly view our culture in light of Scripture's truth and find ourselves walking in the truth of Scripture for our lives. Um, And so today, as we end our series, we're gonna be talking about emotions in the digital age. And so, uh, before we dive into our final topic, could we uh, pray together? Let's all pray. Father, uh, would your word aid us in loving you more with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Would you help us to see the place of emotions in our lives and the wisdom of our emotions in the day that we live in. Let your Holy Spirit now speak truth in love. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, one could make the argument that the greatest commodity in our digital age is not simply attention, uh, but emotional attention. In fact, when we talk about the language of power and wealth in all aspects and form of our current climate, we'll notice that the language is almost exclusively in this realm of emotional capital. Television shows want you to be emotionally invested in their product. Brands and advertisers have entire commercials dedicating not one word about what their product does, but how their product makes you feel. Political campaigns are careful to construct narratives not based upon policy positions, wouldn't that be nice, but rather on emotional response and outrage. Texting in our digital age has pivoted from simply words to a whole library and vocabulary of emotion-based images from memes, gifs, and emojis all designed to evoke emotional capital in the way we communicate and drive our conversations. Now, why is this so? Um, The key to understanding how we feel, how we express ourselves, how in tune we are with our emotions, this is in many ways the key in understanding all of life. After all, as Christians, we believe that God created us with emotions. He didn't create cold flesh to only act in certain inputs, He created feeling beings that respond to life with emotions. And if we understand our emotions under the God who created us and made us that way, then we will understand more of the gospel and why Jesus on the cross means good news for our souls today. Not just something that we think about or, you know, kind of nod our head and say, oh, that's interesting, but something that affects us, something that changes us. And so today, we want to look at what Proverbs, this book of wisdom, reminds us about how God speaks to us about our emotions. And Proverbs has much to say about our emotional selves, but we're only going to focus on actually just three verses in Proverbs today. Emotions and our heart, this is the first verse. Emotions and our response, this is the second verse. And emotions and our redemption, This is the third verse. Emotions in our heart, emotions in our response, and emotions in our redemption. So let's first look at emotions and the heart. Proverbs 27, 19 reminds us about how central the emotional life is to the identity of who we are. As in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects the man. Now, Proverbs here is not talking about the literal organ of the heart. In fact, the entire Old Testament, where the word heart is used over uh, 850 times, the heart is referenced. Very few instances actually deal with the physical organ of the heart itself. When it's typically used, it deals with the inward emotional and spiritual state of a person. The Erdman's Bible Dictionary notes that the heart is given emotional qualities all throughout the Old Testament. We see in Leviticus 19.17, the heart being referred to as hateful. Deuteronomy 13.3, the heart being as loving. Various narratives where the heart is courageous, the heart is fearful, the heart is sad, the heart is glad, the heart is envious or trustful, the heart is thoughtful, the heart is understanding, the heart is the seat of the wheel. These are outpourings of emotional qualities. So like the physical organ of the heart, the heart symbolically in scripture describes the capacity of the human to live in a way that it was intended to live. The heart of a person emotionally reflects the person itself. So depending on who you are as an individual, you will either strongly agree or disagree with the following statement that scripture is making. Your heart Your emotional self defines and reflects back to you, like looking in the water and seeing your face. This is Proverbs 27, 19, your true identity. And therefore, how you learn to deal with your emotions and how your emotions reflect your outward action demonstrate how much our emotions drive us and how we respond to God in the midst of all of that. You know, how to deal with our emotions has become the greatest advancement in the world of mental health over the past several decades. Advancements made both in the research and compassion of our emotions has been a welcome change in a world where mental health is often seen as a stigma. We now know through research that, that one in five adults experience some form of mental illness just in a calendar year. And in particular, our youth struggle greatly in a world that has manipulated their emotional outlook on their lives. Uh, One in six U.S. youth ages 6 to 17 experience a mental health disorder, one in six, according to the National Alliance on Mental Illness. So these have shed, uh, rightly, uh, a light that so many of us have struggles, that we are in need of help, and so rather than bottling up our emotions, that we are... As, as a nation and as a world trying to seek proper care to treat symptoms just as we would a broken leg or a cold. Unfortunately, the demand for care has caused an unprecedented mass exodus of qualified counselors in the field, according to Psychology Today, with, with many therapists recording a record level of burnout, uh, long wait lists to receive help, insurance companies reluctant to have mental health coverage covered because of the cost. Technology has tried to step in to help with various degrees of efficacy from telehealth to group therapy to the next horizon, uh, believe it or not, there's TikTok therapy support groups to automating the mental health process entirely with an AI mental health counselor called WoeBot, W-O-E-Bot, that is uh, a robot that you can talk to about your mental health struggles and will respond with the best practices in the field. Now, what's driving the market is both the real reality that many of us have not dealt with the issues of the heart. We've pushed aside our mental health in the name of sort of this faux kind of strength or believing that mental health is not important. And what is driving this? Oftentimes, here's, here's my, think, my thinking on this. Oftentimes the idea that you are an emotional being, that statement, you are an emotional being has had a deeply negative connotation even within the Christian church. It carries with it this idea that you have someone who is somehow fickle, tossed and turned by the wind, someone who isn't using rational thought to make their decisions, but such categorization, biblically, is actually unintelligible, as though you could compartmentalize that within yourself that thinks rationally versus that which acts on emotion. You see, all of us, are emotional beings driven by the heart, driven by our emotions to respond because this is how God has made us. The idea that you could become emotionless without it affecting you is precisely the problem and crisis we are facing today. And Christians, above all, shouldn't be trying to divorce the two. Our rational minds and emotional minds are not in an adverse relationship but a reciprocal one. Like they're like the Old and New Testament. You need both of them working compatibly together. The heart of a person, Proverbs 27, 19, reflects the person. Think about the language we see in Scripture that speaks of the heart towards God. Romans 10, we are told that the heart, one believes in God. Romans 1, Roman, the heart desires God, finds its peace in God in Colossians 3. And the heart loves Him in Romans 5. The heart, in other words, is more than just mere sentimentality, uh, sentimentality, I should say, uh, than it's often represented. The heart holds a key place in our personhood. The emotional lives we live dictate the desire to fulfill the greatest commandments to what? To think about God with all of our heart, soul, mind? No, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. The heart of emotion stems from a God who wants His people to use them. This should be an antidote that rubs against the very very stereotype of us who hold to a Reformed understanding of Scripture. And you know that name that follows us, the frozen chosen. Now for those of us who have never heard of that term, it's the stereotype that those who are Reformed and mostly Presbyterian are subdued emotionally. They are more intellectual than feeling. As one of my mentors often said, You know, he noticed that as he was guest speaking at various churches, you know, uh, the regular response of of most denominations when the joy enters into their soul during worship is, you know, hallelujah, amen, shouts to God, dancing, lifting up their hands. And, And then when he goes into a frozen chosen church, the version of exuberant joy is them staring at their neighbor when the Holy Spirit is working them going, hmm, that's good. You know, the belief of the frozen chosen is that because they are so well versed in the orderliness of Scripture and the belief that God has called them totally and completely, that the only thing that we should be focused on is the majesty and holiness of God and creates a false dichotomy and says, therefore, you should not care at all about how you feel and not express in any way emotion because that is out of order. And somehow, that emotion destroys the reverence and majesty of God in the worship service. Uh, As you can tell, but even the way I'm framing it, how much I hate that stereotype, (laughs) I hate it. Because us who are reformed Presbyterians hold rightly to scriptures, there's so much that scripture has to say, especially in the Psalms, about the emotional life. Emotions are not anathema to the worship of God. The biblical counselor, Ed Welsh, in his book, Depression, A Stubborn Darkness, points to the completeness of the Psalms in looking how we express ourselves emotionally to God, fully and completely in Him. Everything in the Psalms, from doubt, to pain, to groaning, to anxiety, to gladness, to joy, to fear, from everything in between, that God's glory and His praise are to be found in all of it. Do you want more examples? Take a look at this language, both expressive joy and deepest sorrow in Psalm 55. My heart is in anguish within me. The terror of death assail me. Psalm 88, my soul is full of trouble and my life draws near to the grave. You have put me in the lowest pit. In the darkest depths, the emotional range of the joy of Psalm 150. Praise Him with dancing. Pray, Psalm 47:1. Clap your hands, all you people. Psalm 27. At a sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. Psalm 14:7. To rejoice and be glad. Psalm 1. Delight in the law of God. Psalm 27. The war arise against me, yet I will be confident. The full gamut of worship to the Lord includes all of these Things. Friends, all that we feel in life is not simply meant to be intellectualized away or stuffed down inside. They are meant to come out of our hearts and to the Lord. They are an act of worship when we do so. The heart of emotions is looking to the heart of a God who created you with the capacity to feel and gives you permission to do so. When we give all of our joys, all of our frustrations, all of our burdens, what the Scripture promise us? The psalmist again and again, what is his refrain? That the Lord will delight in you, that he loves you, that he is faithful and steadfast to however you feel. So if this is true, then it must mean that emotions are more than just mere feelings, but they have an effect because they impact our very hearts. And that's what leads us to our second point today, that this always leads to a response. So let's uh, look at emotions and our response in Proverbs 14, 30 to see what I mean. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Here we see the example of two emotional responses, one leading to life and the other to death. You see, it's not envy alone that's the problem. After all, we, we talk about God being righteously jealous for us as his people, but it's the idea of unrighteous jealousy. One's emotions take into a place where emotions swallow up their physical well-being and leading them to death. So if the heart of emotions that come from a God means that our feelings are valid, then Proverbs 14.30 asks us the questions on whether those valid feelings are to life-giving ends, or those that waste away the bones. Our emotions have great effects in the way that we respond that we must think and dwell upon. And historically, both the secular world and the Christian church have taken that direction into two extreme unbiblical directions. one extreme in response to the emotional life is to view the effect that all emotional expression is wrong. In fact, this is very popular today. Take a look at some of your most popular podcasts out there. They're very much on focus on distancing themselves from emotions or emotionality. They purposely try to make their tone, timbre, expression muted. They long for sort of this uh, faux emotional neutrality and their banner explains the catchphrase of the people, facts don't care about your feelings. Your feelings don't deserve a hearing in this worldview. Only objective truth is the only thing that matters, and feelings corrupt, feelings destroy, feelings complicate, feelings can't be trusted. Uh, This might seem like a new idea, but the truth is is that we have been experiencing this extreme version ever since the biblical times. We've got, in fact, a whole uh, Hellenistic philosophy that surrounds that called Stoicism. Stoicism. It was a philosophy that says emotions were destructive in nature to rid yourself of anger, jealousy, and all that are simply material so that logic could only be the only driver of the body. The logos, the word as they called it, believed that reason alone could only be what the human should express. It is distant, untethered by the complexity of emotion. So stoicism viewed mental health illness as defects of the human heart and system. Do you know what was one of the biggest challenges to Stoicism in the 3rd and 4th century? It was the coming of Christianity, where early church fathers reminded the Roman culture of the day that the Logos became flesh. And rather being distant from emotion, that this word made flesh was personal, including all the range of expression of life that comes with it. You see, Jesus, rather than seeing the anxiety of the people who ran to him for help, and thought of it as a liability Jesus saw dignity in those struggling with mental illness those who gave dignity to them in their tra- trauma the tranquil heart the heart that was at peace that brought life and life to a lifeless world thinking that it would be reason alone that it would save them it gave them a person of raw motion in Christ to come into the world and bring redemption Uh, You know, when I was a child, uh, stoicism was was a big part of this idea of what it meant to be a man. Probably from good-natured people who didn't want me to embarrass myself emotionally in public, but, you know, you'd often hear the cry, Hey, men don't cry. Hey, be a man. Men don't complain. Suck it up. And looking back at those moments you know, aside from the obvious, you know, sexism and stuffing of emotions, uh, what I realized is that they were framing the idea of emotional response as against the created order. God didn't create men to demonstrate emotion. In this line of thinking, God created men to be logicians. To be a true man means that you never entered the realm of expression. But I was also very lucky enough to have a dad uh, that would cry with me, a dad who prayed emotionally with me um, at church, at night, sometimes way too long at the dinner table. Sorry, dad, you're here. I'm sorry. I didn't know you were going to be here today. Mm -hmm. My dad reminded me in prayers that emotions were not a bug of the way that God created men. It was a feature of the programming. God did not screw up when he made you an emotional being. And to deny that is to deny the wholeness of your heart. So if the way that we view our emotions is only bad, we've made a huge error, a biblical one, denying Jesus who came into the world as a feeling human being. However, the other extreme, the other direction of today in our digital age, and perhaps more influential, is the idea that every emotion experienced is meant for your happiness and that the feeling of the pursuit of happiness should never be challenged and should never be questioned. Uh, This is the mantra that you hear, whatever makes you happy, you do you. Become free from pain and live the pleasure you've always want to. Uh, YOLO, although that phrase is now getting old, but YOLO, right, you only live once. And what is the definition of happiness in this worldview, an emotion? Emotion is happiness having things in life that will only make you happy and removing yourself from the absence of any pain, any discomfort, any inconvenience. Uh, This, once again, is not new. You see, uh, opposite to the Stoics was this group called the Epicureans. Uh, It comes from a philosopher named Epicurus. He taught that true humanity was built upon the life of pleasure and freedom from mental pain a life filled with materialism, a life filled with practical hedonism, that pleasure in and of itself is the highest goal. It was heavily criticized, as it is today, with the notion that we are just basically just atoms firing to the desire of our molecules, seeking and craving every whim of our emotions and wherever that takes us. And that cannot be challenged or questioned. So again, when Christianity hit the scene, In the Roman Empire, it challenged the notion of Epicureanism heavily and criticized this view. You see, your emotions don't dictate your joy, nor do they serve the purpose of following every part of your being. Uh, You are not just atoms responding to the firing of your synapses. You are created with purpose and meaning and dignity that extends not to just this life, but the life that is to come. So in other words, mere sentimentality can only carry you so far. Jesus, in his arrival, comes not to fulfill every desire and wish of the earthly human life, but to fulfill the desires and wishes of the one who sent him. Jesus comes, you know, not as a this whimsical dictator who gets what he wants at all times, like some spoiled child or tech billionaire buying Twitter and renaming it X for some reason. Jesus comes as a suffering servant, washing the feet of those very disciples that would frustrate him quite regularly, telling them to take up their cross and follow him. Jesus comes more than just worldly desires overtaking his spirit, rather he comes lowly and gentle like our scripture reading this morning. There's, in other words, more to being God's creation than more to just how you feel. When I was in youth ministry, I got the distinct honor of being asked to chaperone for a bunch of seniors on a senior high school trip at a Christian private school. Um, Now, when you tell a bunch of high school seniors who grew up in a fairly sheltered Christian environment that they can go to a beach house and do whatever they want with their chaperones for a week, um, it's kind of like a dog who caught a fire truck. they've been finally chasing their entire life and they realize that they don't even know what they're doing, right? Um, so every hour on this trip was just pivoting from one big idea and activity to another. Uh, you know, let's play skee-ball for three hours, let's, let's do a CrossFit workout on the deck on our fragile beach house, let's, let's stay up all night playing random games and, and keep the party going because we have no idea when this will ever happen again in our lives. Now i see some of you adults are chuckling um but what do you do when you're with just the people with your age group your best friends on a trip together with no authority figures or your children beside you right it's the exact same thing you turned into a senior on a senior trip right so don't be too hard on them right um but as the night wore on with these kids you could see the inner conflict that they were happening they wanted to live out this hedonism. They, they wanted to party all night and to live life of the freedom from their shackles of their parents and how they wanted to. But as 2 a.m. hit in the morning, what did we find? They were exhausted. They couldn't keep the emotional bankroll of hedonism going. Their bones were literally rotting away. They were grumpy and tired and realized that greater than their desire for pleasure was a desire to listen to their parents and go to sleep. What they realized is that materialism, hedonism, sentimentality, emotionalism could not be sustainable. So in other words, these unordered emotions that we're talking about, whether it be sort of, you know, stoicism, epicureanism, they will always lead to the idolatry of the heart. They will drive your desires away from the desire of the one who created you to feel like Christ felt. You see, the Stoic will reject Jesus because Jesus weeps. He will reject Jesus because Jesus laments. He will reject Jesus because he's expressing his desires to God, the Father in Gethsemane. The Epicurean will turn away from Jesus laying down his life for those who desired him to die. They will reject Jesus who had sorrow and anxiety on the cross. They will reject that Jesus didn't seek materialism and had no place to lay his head, that he didn't pursue earthly power and authority instead gave up years of his life in the service of those that would misunderstand and reject him, homeless and penniless. Where are you today? Where do your idolatries take you when your emotions become unrighteous? Do you try and stuff everything of how you feel? Or do you make emotions ultimate? Do you turn emotions into God? Both of these responses, apart from the reordering of Christ, will rot the bones. Why? Because ultimately both of them say that you are sufficient enough to deal with them. They are both rooted in the idea that you alone can bear the weight of it all a disordered emotion that causes us to believe that we are the Lord of our lives. But what does the tranquil heart of this proverb says believe? The tranquil heart will recognize that we are insufficient to carry the burdens of our heart. The tranquil heart that gives life is recognizing that God is the one who can bear this burden, that we take it up to Him. The counselor Dan Allender and Trumper Longman in uh, their excellent book, The Cry of the Soul, walk through what this looks like from decentering ourselves as the main part of being able to be sufficient to deal our emotions and instead place them onto God. They talk about this idea that unrighteous anger leads to impatience towards justice, but righteous anger calls upon the Lord to fight injustice unrighteous fear leads to a destructive anxiety of the soul constructive fear leads us to surrender our worries into the hands of god why because he cares for you unrighteous jealousy leads us to steal kill and destroy righteous jealousy looks to the jealous love of god who longs for us to turn to him you see when our emotions are rightly ordered before god we find ourselves in a place where our feelings direct us to the only powerful Force enough, strong enough to hear them. It's God Himself, the arms of a loving God who awaits to hear how you're doing. And this is what leads us to our final uh, point here today, and our final proverb, emotions in our redemption, found in Proverbs 1530, the third verse here. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart, and good news refreshes the bones. Proverbs 15.30 speaks of the radiance of a friend, the light of the eyes, and the way in which someone that you gaze at brings goodness to the soul of a person. The way it sort of just restores the heart. Emotions are coming to life. The way that the person is made whole is through this light that enters into the darkness of your heart. It makes it come alive. And it's not just that. The second half of Proverbs fifteen thirty talks about good news that is given to this person that comes in to refresh the bones. The bones, in- instead of rotting, is being renewed. It's not the literal bones. It's, again, it's the symbol of the psychological being, the whole person. So the wisdom of this proverb is speaking to the reality that redemption of our souls weary from the emotional whiplash of either Stoicism or Epicureanism, weary from trying to manage our emotions in our own strength, the way forward is communion. Communion with those who bring light into our lives. Communion with those that bear and bring us good news that we need to hear. Communion that provides hope. Communion that lies with us in our brokenness and helps us to lead us in the way out. Church, when we think of our gatherings here on Sunday mornings, we should think of it as an opportunity to live out this communion that restores our souls, to give light to each other's darkness. As images of God, men and women made in God's image, the rejoicing of the heart that comes to each of us is that when we see each other every Sunday, you know, the good, the bad, the emotionally hard, the emotionally joyous, we bring light and good news to one another. The pretension of Stoicism. How are you doing? Doesn't matter how I feel. God is good. The pretension of Epicureanism. How are you feeling? Oh, I'm fine. Everything's good. There's nothing wrong with me. All that fades away. And we lay down ourselves before God and each other. That we point each other to the light of the world. That we point each other to the good news of Christ. And rejoice with all of our hearts to His glorious names. That our hearts... Become restored in that act. That we, when we listen to the preaching of His Word, when we pray together, when we sing to Him, when we w- consider Christ's defeat of Satan on the cross, that our feelings in that moment no longer become either inconsequential or ultimate. Instead, our feelings rest in a Savior that sees all the broken mess that we are and says, "His kingdom is coming, and He will wipe away every tear." From your eye and death and trauma and weariness and pain will all be no more. Uh, the reformed scholar B.B. Warfield wrote one of the best treatments of how redemption of our emotions are found in Christ. It's this excellent little Tristy called "The Emotional Life of Our Lord." You can read it in one day. it's excellent. Uh, in this, he reminds us that Christ's emotional life. You know, it wasn't just something that pointed to the humanity of Jesus, um, as though Jesus is so human as to make it that we cannot worship him, but rather, uh, Jesus' emotional life in his earthly ministry reclaimed and redeemed the curse of the fall and the curse of the fall of emotions and saves us from them on the cross. So, Jesus' grief, His distress, his compassion towards the hurting, his his anger, his agony, his crying to the Lord, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They're all signs of Christ redeeming the curse of the fall in our emotions. So tears flow for Lazarus from Jesus, even though he knows that he's about to raise him from the dead. He endures the cross for you and with me with joy, even as he suffers great torment. And Warfield comes to this just astonishing conclusion. What ultimately kills our savior? It's not just the physical torment of the cross itself, but what B.B. Warfield calls Christ dying of a broken heart. The strain of his mental suffering as he commits his spirit to the Father. So Jesus died not of a physical illness, but a mental one, taking the curse upon himself and redeeming all of humanity in the process. In this we find the redemption of our emotions that Proverbs 15.30 is speaking of, that our hearts have been given life because the light of the world has entered into the darkness. Christ himself, through his emotional torment, we have true joy that carries us even through the midst of our own sufferings. The good news of the gospel is that we are sinners who have been redeemed from unholy hedonism of our emotional output and released from the weight of shame and guilt that we can't fix ourselves and instead calls us to look to Christ who offers communion with us. Christ himself deals with this whole range Of human emotion and gives us permission to do the same in bringing them to the Father. All of our shame, all of our regret, all of our hope, all of our longings, and tells us that we can still worship Him. So when this happens, it redeems our emotions that are sinful, prideful, selfish, and replaces them with something different entirely. See, Uh, The the antidote to uh, sinful emotions is not no emotion. The antidote to sinful emotion is redeemed emotions. Um, So this is what this looked like in my life. Uh, So back when I was single, I wanted nothing more than sort of the idealized version of hyper hopeless romanticism, all right? So I had all these dreams, right? I was gonna propose in the George Peabody Library in Baltimore, if you've ever been there. Basically, you know, these huge library bookshelves that were laced everywhere. It's basically Beauty and the Beast, okay? Um, and I was going to be sort of be this romantic of romantics. And, uh, and, and in, in that moment, right, it was going to fulfill all the emptiness and loneliness that I could ever feel inside. And so marriage surprised me. Uh, not because marriage killed those dreams. Um, no, actually, because marriage replaced it with something far greater. Marriage taught me that there is something greater than the idealized Disney romanticism that only actually filled in me a desire of greater loneliness and emptiness. No, marriage redeemed that by me by showing me that I am still loved irrespective of how awful I can be. Marriage showed me a deeper conclusion, you know, I leave Cabinet doors open all the time, and Paige still loves me. She still loves me throughout all of that. Our idolatry of emotional output caused us not to see the beauty of what God is offering, but when we redeem our emotions, we will have something far greater than what we imagine in our minds. So today I'll offer you nothing more than what God offers for those whose emotions have either become too much to bear or for those of us who feel alone. I offer you Jesus, who sweats drops of blood. I offer you the cross, physical torment when he placed himself in front of the, the, this trauma because he loves you. I offer you Jesus' perfect righteousness, which he gave so that he could become sin for us and experiencing excruciating emotional and spiritual suffering on your behalf. Jesus taking our place on the cross is the declaration that whatever your emotions might take you, whatever discomfort you have in the idea of God, whatever you, in that place, whenever you're in that place where you feel alone and no one understands, Christ steps in where you are and says, I'll take it from here. I'm the only one who can. Give it to me so that you can be set free. Give it to me so that you can be rid of the guilt and shame that you pour on yourself daily. Give it to me so that you can stop faking like everything is okay and stop white-knuckling your inner struggle. Give it to me because I am the only one worthy enough to bear it and I already have for you. And let the church, with all of its flaws and imperfections, let the body of Christ cover you as best as they are able with care and love and sympathy as they point you to Christ. So City of Hope, uh, my prayer for us as a church is that rightly seize the emotion, uh, uh, the value of emotions in the Christian life and in our current age, and let us be the church that avoids the extremes of the world around us. Emotions are not nothing, but they are not everything. They are the heart of the God, who, of, of who God created us to be, to reflect the image of Christ who redeems the curse of our emotions and helps us to redeem them well. Righteous joy, righteous gladness, righteous anger and anguish, righteous jealousy, all for the sake of reaching our world with the good news and showing them the light of Christ. This is the wisdom of Proverbs as we end our time in here. So let's pray together.